Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. If you have your Bibles near you, tonight's Bible reading is from Mark 6, verses 7 to 30, and I'm reading from the NIV version. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and a holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, said her mother. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. If you attempted to close that part of God's word, uh, Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, uh, can I encourage you to open that up again, either uh, in the Bible that you've got in front of you or on your phone, uh, whatever you have, so, so you can follow along. You can uh, check what I'm saying against the word of God, the gospel of Mark. Um, it's good to see you all this morning, uh, 10 a.m. We started meeting for the first time, and uh, it's uh, nice to have you with us. If you're a regular member of City Light Church North Adelaide, um, it's kind of good to see you, um, strangely. Uh, if you're visiting uh, perhaps online church at City Light Church North Adelaide for the first time, uh, a really warm welcome to you from me, uh, Simon. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light Church North Adelaide. Uh, let's pray as we come to the Gospel of Mark again this Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning by your spirit and through your word we would see Jesus. We pray that this morning by your spirit and through your word we would hear Jesus Father, by your spirit and through your word, we pray that we would love Jesus. Father, change us by your word and help us to live for Jesus, to love like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 
I wonder how many of you have heard of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Uh, The year was 1553 and Queen Mary, you can see her on the screen, had ascended to the throne of England. She became known as Bloody Mary for she had that many people kind of put to death for their religious convictions. Her father, King Henry VIII, uh, had separated the church in England from the Catholic Church in Rome. Um, Henry then died and his son Edward became king. And Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were two godly, Christ-serving, gospel-loving men who advised Edward, the new king, as to how to kind of reform the church, how to kind of make the church in England a bit more Bible-based, gospel-centred. Ridley became the Bishop of London. Uh, Latimer became the Bishop of Worcester. And history tells us, right, in Latimer's sermons, and I quote, that... He emphasised that men should serve the Lord, people should serve the Lord with a true heart and inward affection, not just outward show. That sounds pretty familiar, isn't it? That's something we seem to talk a lot about at City Light Church, North Adelaide. We are Latimer's and Ridley's spiritual descendants, if you want to put it that way. Um, King Edward, right, he became gravely ill and his half-sister Mary became the queen. And Mary made it her mission in life to return the Church of England back to its Roman Catholic roots. Bishop Ridley, Bishop Latimer and another guy, Archbishop Cranmer, they didn't like that very much. And, and they were all arrested. They were sent to Oxford where they were examined by the Lord's Commissioner at Oxford's Divinity School. They were asked, you know, like a whole range of theological questions, but one key area centred around the authority of the Pope in Rome. When Ridley was asked if he believed that the Pope was heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied, no, the church was not built on any man, but built on the truth that Peter the Apostle confessed, that Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was the Son of God. Ridley said, I can't honour the Pope in Rome. Can't do that because he basically saw the papacy as self-seeking, wanting its own glory and power, not the glory of God. You know, you can imagine, right, those opinions didn't go down so well with the Roman Catholic academics and theologians at Oxford. And so, on the morning of October 16, 1555, both Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were tied to stakes, firewood placed around their feet, and they were martyred for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the flames kind of licked up around their legs and bodies, Latimer shouted out to Ridley to encourage him, and he said these famous words, quote, "'Be of good comfort, Mr Ridley, and play the man.'" We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, and I trust it shall never be put out. Great words, yeah? Queen Mary, bloody Queen Mary, she died three years later, and her re-establishment of Roman Catholicism was utterly reversed. Now, I don't know, that story sounds distant, doesn't it? It sounds really distant. Um, distant in a whole bunch of ways, right? Firstly, it happened over 500 years ago. We don't know anyone who's lived back then. Um, it was in another time. It sounds different geographically, right? It's on the other side of the world. It takes 24 hours by plane to get there today. It would have taken 12 months in a ship back then. It's a long way away. 
It also, I think it's distant in terms of likelihood as well, right? I mean, this is a pretty moving story. It's an inspiring story, but it belongs more to the history books, right? Rather than present day experience. I think you'd agree. But this famous story of two of our kind of spiritual descendants raises questions for me, raises two questions for me, and I hope for you as well. The first question is this. I wonder how many of us have actually ever really been put under the pump for trusting in Jesus Christ. How many of us have really felt the insult or the sting or the pain or the cost of thinking and standing and saying Jesus comes first and nothing else will ever move me? How many of us have really felt the flames Perhaps not on our legs, but on our hearts, our reputations, our careers, our decisions we make for our families, ourselves, because of Jesus. The second question is related. It is the question of how would you respond if that happened? How would I respond if that happened? If indeed it did come down to like a life or death decision, do I go with Jesus or do I kind of protect my life? Does my love for Jesus trump my love for my life? is yours. Well, that's exactly what the passage of scripture we just had read, chapter 6, verse 7 to 30 of Mark's gospel, is really all about. It's what it's really all about. Now, you might be thinking, really? As I heard Lauren read the Bible before, that's not really what came to my mind when I heard that read. And and you know what? That's okay. Uh, Because this is another, you guessed it, sandwich, another Mark and Sandwich. Remember those things I talked about last week and you probably thought, I think Jacko's just kind of making it all up. Um, it's what we saw last week. Sandwiches, right? Sandwiches are this technique that Mark uses uh, where he starts to tell a story and then that story gets interrupted by a seemingly unrelated story and then after that we get back to the original story again. And you'll remember that the meat, in this case the ham, interprets the bread. So the meat in the middle, the story in the middle, helps us to understand the story on the outside, the one that started and then we come back to. Well, today we stumble upon another sandwich. And again, it informs the way we're meant to read this section of Mark's gospel. Um, Here's what we're going to look at today. Three things. We're going to look at the calling to living for Jesus, to gospel ministry. We're going to look at the content of gospel ministry, and thirdly, the cost of gospel ministry. Okay, so uh, the calling, the content, and the cost. So let's begin, right? Verse 7, come with me, chapter 6, verse 7, to the calling. We see in verse 7 that Jesus gathers the 12 disciples to himself. Um, he gives them instructions and then he, he sends them out. Um, chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Now, the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples, were appointed by Jesus back in Mark chapter 3. Since then, they've, they've walked with Jesus, they've witnessed Jesus, they've watched Jesus do all these amazing things. And now their apprenticeship, their traineeship, their cadetship is over. It's time for them to step up and, and to step out. And they're sent out by Jesus to, in effect, replicate what Jesus has been doing. Now, we need to be clear here on something. Um, These instructions that Jesus gives to the 12 disciples, they're for the 12 disciples, which means they're not really explicitly for you and for me. 
Jesus is speaking to these 12 men who've walked and witnessed and and watched Jesus in a way that we don't and we haven't. And they're now sent out to replicate more or less exactly what Jesus has done in a way that we don't. But that's not to say that this passage isn't kind of about us and hasn't got anything to say to us. It it does. Um, Have a look with me now at verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8. These were his instructions. These were Jesus' instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but don't take with you an extra tunic. Now, whilst any normal person right, might think, well, that sounds like gross negligence, right? I'm sending someone out on a trip to represent them and don't pack anything, don't pack a sandwich, don't take any food, don't take an extra jumper... But for the disciples, right, it's all about faith, about trust and dependence on the one who will guide them on the mission. I said last week I've been to India and Sri Lanka a number of times to teach pastors theology and to share the good news of Jesus with people who I come across. And, and as I go, right, I, I pray that God would, would lead me, right, lead me to the people that he wants me to share the good news with. Lead me to the doors to knock on. Lead me to the pastors that need a word of encouragement and things like that. So I pray, God, please lead me in that way. But let me tell you, right, organising the flights, getting the appropriate vaccinations and sorting out my accommodation, I've got that. God, I've got that. See, what I've noticed I do, right, is before I go on a trip, I pray about all the spiritual dimensions, but the physical, I've got it. I'm in control. See, here Jesus is teaching the disciples that the spiritual and the physical, he has got it. He's all over it. You know, they're being taught, right? Don't just assume that there's, you know, certain parts of life that are for me and then there are certain parts that are for God or for Jesus to sort out. Now, Jesus is saying, I will lead you, I will guide you, I will hold you, not just a part of you, but all of you. Don't do anything in your own strength. That's really what he's teaching the disciples. That's what he's teaching you and he's teaching me. You know, it is remarkably easy, I think, and even possible to do gospel ministry, to live for Jesus in our own strength, to write sermons, to share the gospel, to serve at church, to lead other people, to lead your family, all on your own strength. And we do it instead of depending on God, right? We depend on either habit or we depend on um, natural giftedness or personality or, or something else, right? And here's the thing. Often people won't even notice. Now, I can stand up here, I can stand up in church and I can exhort everyone, you know, husbands in particular, love your wives like Jesus loved the church. All the while, I can spend an entire week um, ignoring Adele and being unkind to her. And, and you know what? You wouldn't know. You know, each night we we get together in the kids' bedrooms and we pray with them before they go to bed and we pray with them and, and we talk to them about Jesus, about how Jesus would have them live and that Jesus has got them in the palm of his hand. And all the while, right, I could have spent that whole last day promoting my own life over living for Jesus or being godly. I can spend that whole day being discontent rather than joyful and relegating, I don't know, serving my saviour just to a Sunday morning and to kids' bedtime. And you know what? They don't know. They wouldn't know. 
But here's the thing, if we kind of keep living that way, living in a way where we're not utterly dependent on God, you know what? It'll, it'll kill you. It'll kill me. If your Christianity becomes something that is driven by habits or giftedness or personality, and if that becomes by and large the way you live, the way I live, watch out. For we are creating for ourselves a shell of a Christian. All exterior and kind of cavernous within, which is bankrupt, which is hypocritical. Or as Jesus himself so evocatively put it when describing other people who do this, uh, they are whitewashed tombs, uh, beautifully presented on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. And we can all do it. I do it. And the answer for the disciples, the answer for us, for anyone who follows Jesus is dependence on Jesus. Total, unequivocal, universal dependence, not merely for the spiritual, but, but learning to see God's good and kind hand in every morsel that we eat, every hour that we work, every dollar we have, every jumper that we wear. And when we live and serve, I think, out of that complete dependence on God himself, then I think we're ministering the gospel truly. So the disciples are called to a dependent ministry, but then we learn about the content of their ministry, content of their gospel work. I want you to imagine um, for a second, just for a moment, that you live next door to someone who is not yet a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus. Or you have a parent or you have a, a brother or a sister or a child who's not yet a follower of Jesus. It's not hard to imagine, is it? And if I was to ask you, what do you long for most for that person? I reckon, I at least hope, that if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, the thing you long for most for that person is that they would come to know Jesus, that they would meet Jesus and in Jesus find forgiveness of sins and, and hope of eternal life, forever life, right? It's a great answer. But I think for Mark, it's a completely inadequate answer. Are you confused? Well, stay with me just for a minute. You see, for a whole range of reasons, right, we've reduced the gospel to a, a personal, spiritual transaction between an individual and God. We so personalize the gospel that in our thinking, we reduce it to the forgiveness of sins and, and access to heaven. And to be clear, right, it is not less than that, but the gospel's much more than that. And Mark does not want us to make that mistake that we often do. The Apostle Paul, for that matter, doesn't want us to make that mistake, and nor should we. You see, we see in this passage, Mark chapter 6, uh, and what Jesus tells his disciples to do, as he himself did, it's found in verses 7 and 12 and 13. Um, so this is what the content of gospel ministry is. So verse 7 again, uh, Jesus says, um, Calling the twelve to himself, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Come down with me to verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Do you see it there? So Jesus doesn't just send the disciples out to preach the gospel. No, they are to go out, they are to proclaim that people should repent, turn back to God, but they are also called to cast out demons and to anoint the sick that they would be healed. What's going on? 
What are we seeing here? Is that the disciples do what Jesus has been doing, which is breaking in the kingdom of God, which is ushering in a new state of affairs, which is bringing to the world a new day and a new way. You see, demons are beings that can bind and destroy and imprison someone, but the gospel sets people free. Sickness is here like the shadow and the effect of death, if you like. And the gospel frees people from death and its ability to destroy life. What we're seeing here is that Jesus and the disciples are bringing a wholeness to people, a restoration to people, freedom from sin, liberation from enslavement, pulling people out from under the shadow and shroud of death. People who are being saved and restored and freed and having life brought back to them. And that is what it is to live in the kingdom of God. Here is what we see. Jesus and the disciples are not simply focused on people being forgiven and getting to heaven. No, they're focused on the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, you might be thinking, right, well, what's the difference? What's the difference? I think the difference is huge. You see, often we think about it, you know, is that preaching of the gospel is simply about getting someone sort of over the line, onto the life raft, as it were. When this world kind of burns and goes away and the new one comes, it's about getting people off this ship into the lifeboat, waiting for the new boat kind of to come. You know, trust in Jesus, find forgiveness of your sins, find him great, now you're a Christian. I think that's really inadequate. Jesus didn't simply come to just kind of get people over the line. Jesus came to break in his new kingdom. Jesus came to restore the way that his people were to to know God, then to live for him in this world of his. The gospel of the Lord Jesus is much more about the restoration of a people than it is about the salvation of just an individual. Now, please don't get me wrong, okay? Please don't hear me say that repenting of sin and turning to Jesus in faith is not important. I'm actually saying that's hugely important, in fact. Um, I would say that's actually of first importance. You know, we see this in Mark's gospel, right? And we see that in the baptism of, of John the Baptist, Mark chapter 1, we read that he came to bring a baptism for the repentant, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, repentance is the, the first thing. But it's not the only thing. It's, it's, it's the doorway, if you like. But doors lead somewhere, don't they? And repentance is like the doorway into a house. It's the doorway into a kingdom. A kingdom that needs to be lived in and explored and spoken of. Perhaps a better way to put it is like this. Um, Jesus saves you from something. He saves us from something. He does. He saves you. He saves us from, uh, from sin and death and from the isolation and despair and judgment that that will bring. Brilliant. But he saves you and me for something as well. He saves you from something, but he saves you for something. He saves you for the kingdom of God a new life under a new king with a new spirit in your heart where everything all of a sudden kind of looks different. Everything goes from black and white to full colour where we learn by the mercy, by the grace of God, in the power of the spirit to, to think differently, to serve differently, to work differently, to love differently, to 
be married differently, to be single differently, to parent differently, to think differently, to be entertained differently, to spend our money differently, to view our possessions differently, to view, I don't know if you're facing this, retirement differently, all for the glory of God, all for the praise of Jesus. See, that's what repentance does. It transforms our whole lives not just get us across the line. And it transforms our lives so that we would then be a blessing to all those around us, that others would get a glimpse of the beauty and the loveliness of the kingdom of God and want to kind of be part of it. That's what repentance does. This is what the gospel does. This is what entering the kingdom of God does. And the disciples are to learn it, to teach it, and to live it, and to display it. And you know what? So are we. So we've thought a bit about the calling of gospel ministry, talked a bit about the, the content of the gospel. It's not just about getting people across the line, that repentance leads to this wholesale transformation, a new way of living for the glory of God and for the joy of others around us. And now we turn to the third thing we see here, the cost of ministry, the cost of living for Jesus. And this is where we get our sandwich, actually, So story one, if you remember, back at the beginning, um, Jesus sends out his disciples. Story two is that strange story about what happened to John the Baptist. Uh, We know, if you remember back in chapter one, verse 14, uh, John is imprisoned and we don't really know what happened to John after that. He sort of disappears off the page and Jesus kind of rises up and becomes the key feature, which is appropriate. Well, here we find out what happened to John. Mark tells this story of John. It's awful, right? A weak leader makes a rash promise. A scornful woman asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, and she gets it. Story three is just one sentence. And remember, if this is a sandwich, right, story three needs to tie back in to story one about the, the 12 disciples being sent out. And sure enough, we find it in just one verse, chapter 6 and verse 30. Chapter 6 and verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, I'm in an old copy of the NIV. Um, Maybe you've got a newer copy of the NIV, the New International Version. Maybe you've got an Eastern Suburbs Version, the ESV, in front of you. I don't know. Um, But I think verse 30, and you'll notice in those editions, right, that verse 30 kind of comes under the heading, Jesus feeds the 5,000. I actually think it belongs ahead, just in front of that, sort of right off the back of, of verse 29 before we jump into the next sort of story. You see, what's going on? What is, what is Mark trying to show us through this sandwich? Well, here is what we have. In story one, we have the story about what it means to be a disciple. Story two, we have a story about the murder of a disciple, which means then story three jumps back to the theme of what it means to be a disciple. And the middle story, remember, interprets the outer story. Do you see what Mark is saying? Being a disciple of Jesus is all about death. Being a disciple of Jesus is all about death. Um, One commentator, one Markan scholar put it like this, quote, 
the rather awkward appending of the return of the twelve in only one verse, must mean that Mark saw a relationship between missionaries and martyrdom, between discipleship and death. See, what Mark is saying is this. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to die. Now, you might say, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, Some of you are thinking, like, yeah, but we already know that not everything in this section applies to us. Simon, you said just a bit earlier that uh, the 12 disciples are sent out by Jesus to do exactly what Jesus did, but things that they did we don't do. So maybe this kind of passage really only applies to the 12 disciples who were with Jesus, watched Jesus, witnessed Jesus. Um, after all, Simon, almost all of them, they all died ultimately for their faith in the Lord Jesus, right? And maybe you've got me. Maybe. Good point. Uh, you might be right. It might be that, that Jesus is really just giving an, an insight for the disciples themselves. But here's the thing, right? What do you say to Jesus, who in Mark chapter 8, just a couple of chapters ahead, what do you say to Jesus when he says this? Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Everyone in that crowd, all the disciples would have known that the cross was an instrument of death. Jesus is saying to the crowd, he's saying to his disciples and to you and to me, if you want to follow me, you have to die. Just after Jesus tells the crowd and the disciples to take up their cross and follow him, he says this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the the great Christian man who suffered terribly in concentration camps but held on to the hope of the Lord Jesus, wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Quote, when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. So here is what I think Mark is saying. Here is what I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying. Above all, here is what I think Jesus is saying. And it all has to do with death. If you live for yourself, you're going to die. Finally, ultimately, and eternally, you will die and you'll find yourself separated from the person, from the love, and from the goodness of God forever. But Jesus also says, if you want to live, you have to die. Did you see that? It's all to do with death. If you want to live, you have to die. You have to die to self. You have to die to ambition. You have to die to to pride, to the flesh, to insecurity, to gratification. You have to die to all those things. And if you do, Jesus says, you will live. But you'll find life. Not only here and now, but here, now and forever. Following Jesus, at the end of the day, is all about death. Have you really considered that? Some of you say, no, 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 that's not right. Following Jesus, actually, Simon, is all about life. And I agree. Following Jesus is all about life. But to enter that life, we have to die. It's ironic, isn't it? Because that's exactly what Jesus, the Son of God, had to do. For Jesus to take up his life in its fullness, he had to die so that he could live now at the right hand of God. And so do you. And so the questions, the question for all of us is twofold. Have you died? And do you continue to die? Have I died? And do I continue to die? You know, do I actually really live out that word of Jesus? You know, take up your cross. 
Deny yourself, follow me. And in doing that, find life. Have you died to the desire to save your life, to to live for yourself, to, to make a mark? Have you died to that? Have you died to Jesus? And do you continue to die? Do I continue to die? Do I daily repent, turn back to Jesus, give myself over, seek his forgiveness, lay our lives before him, humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you take off that crown that sort of seemingly finds its way back onto our heads after every night's sleep? Do you lay that crown down at the foot of the cross each new morning and say, I'm not the king, Jesus. You're the king, Jesus. What are we going to do today? Do you do that? Do I do that? Disciples do that. Followers of Jesus do that. You'll see on the screen now the the picture of the Martyrs Memorial, uh, which stands in Oxford today commemorating the faith and the courage of uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer and Thomas Cranmer. Uh, You and I, will almost certainly, I think, never be called to publicly denounce our Christian faith upon fear of death. That's really unlikely. You'll almost, we'll, we will almost never be called to stand up for Jesus like those men did some 500 or so years ago. But would you? Would I? More than that, have you? Do you? Have you died to yourself? And do you die to yourself and live for Jesus? For all those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved, it's the only way to live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the word that you've given us today. Father, for this part of your word, Lord, thank you for the reminder of the the call to gospel ministry, that ultimately it's you who call us into this new life. Father, help us to to be men and women who don't um, reduce the gospel down simply to to getting people across the line, but live in a way that um, displays, um, presents to the world the goodness and the beauty of the kingdom of God. And Father, help us Examine our lives. So, Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would examine our lives with us, open up our hearts, um, challenge those parts of our lives where we hold on to things and are not willing to give them to you. Lord, help us uh, to count the cost of ministry, to die to self, and in doing that, find real life in Jesus. And Father, we ask this for our joy, the joy of those around us, and ultimately, Lord, for your glory. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.